Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the LSE for tonight's event. My name is Jason Alexander, and I'm a professor of philosophy in the Department of Philosophy at the London School of Economics and Political Science. I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Adam Perkins and Dr. Kitty Stewart to the LSE today for an author meets discussant session regarding Dr. Perkins' recent book, The Welfare Trait, How State Benefits Affect Personality. Dr. Perkins is a lecturer in the neurobiology of personality at King's College London, and Dr. Stewart is associate professor of the Department of Social Policy here at LSE. In today's event, Dr. Perkins will open by arguing that welfare policies which increase the number of children born into disadvantaged households risk proliferating dysfunctional employment-resistant personality characteristics due to the damaging effect on personality development of exposure to childhood disadvantage. After he speaks on this topic for 45 minutes, I will then invite Dr. Stewart to give a response, which will last for 20 minutes, and then I shall open it up for questions from the audience. Dr. Perkins' claim, I suspect, will strike some as controversial, yet it is entirely fitting that we engage with it here. Why is that? Recall the words inscribed upon Marx's grave in Highgate Cemetery. I quote, the philosophers have only interpreted the world in various ways. The point, however, is to change it. This sentiment is entirely in line with that of the Fabian founders of the LSE, who sought to improve society by reducing poverty, reducing inequality, and addressing other issues. Yet changing the world requires that one knows the causes of things. If social policy is to be based upon science rather than ideology, it is vitally important that we get the science right. And this requires the careful and critical examination of ideas. Given this, I would like to remind everyone that the school exists for the pursuit of learning. Its fundamental purpose can be achieved only if its members and visitors to it can work and conduct their business peacefully in conditions which permit freedom of thought and freedom of expression within an environment of respect for the rights of other persons. Now, for those Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is LSE Welfare. This event is being recorded and hopefully will be made available as a podcast subject to no technical difficulties. And given that, I would therefore like to ask you to please put your phones on silent so as to not disrupt the event. And with that, would you please join me in welcoming Dr. Adam Perkins to LSE to deliver his lecture entitled, The Welfare Trait. Thanks very much, Jason. Uh, hello, everyone. Thank you for coming. Uh, I suspect this is the first ever academic discussion of possible links between personality and the welfare state. So I think it's a great occasion, and I'm really pleased that so many of you have come. I must also say a special thank you to Professor Roman Frigg and his colleagues for working so hard uh, to make sure that tonight's rescheduled event could go ahead. Um, it's great to see the LSE standing up 
for freedom of scientific discussion. And that's important because there are no downsides to discussing scientific research. Um, if it's good science, then the discussion will help it get adopted quicker. Um, if it's bad science, then discussion will help it get debunked quicker. Um, and talking of uh, bad science, uh, those of you who are active on social media may have noticed uh, Ben Goldacre uh, using Twitter to attack the welfare trait. Um, it's fun to see the Times, Telegraph, Mail promoting the risible science of Adam Perkins. I replied, it's risible to dismiss an empirically based peer-reviewed book without citing a greater mass of counter-evidence. Um, ben replied, you don't weigh these things or count the references. You're getting peer review right now on Twitter and on blogs. There we go. Um, and Ben's not the only one. The well-known opponent of welfare reform, uh, Jonathan Portis, um, has been critiquing the welfare trait on Twitter, as shown here from the 1st of March. The statement, welfare policies can impact fertility, is uncontroversial, but it's not what you said, says Jonathan. Um, I say, yes it is. For example, if you read the book, you'll see that on page two, I say this, one potentially important discovery is that the welfare state can boost the number of children born into disadvantaged households. Uh, Jonathan says, uh, I didn't say your whole book was false, uh, merely that you should correct the false, unsupported statements. Um, so, uh, according to Ben, Twitter comments like these constitute peer review, uh, but I'm not so sure. Because in academia, when we peer review a manuscript, we normally read it first. Uh, and here we see tweets from Ben and Jonathan from March the 31st, um, showing neither of them have read it. So um, for those of you who prefer to critique my argument from a position of knowledge, um, I'm going to summarize 23 studies, um, which I think indicate that it's premature to dismiss the possibility that there are problematic links between personality and the welfare state. What I'm not going to do is claim that my book is the final word on this topic. Uh, far from it. Uh, the, the purpose of, of the book is to um, instead initiate scientific discussion of personality uh, and the welfare state so that discoveries from personality research uh, may be used to contribute to the continued development of our welfare state. And this development process has been going on for centuries, a high point of which was uh, William Beveridge's report, which uh, was formally entitled uh, Social Insurance and Allied Services here, uh, still available from HMSO, I think. Um, and this set out a blueprint for the modern welfare state um, but what many people don't realize is that Beveridge's vision was a tightrope act. Um, he sought to provide an income for unemployed people, but without eroding work motivation. Um, he was conscious of this dilemma, and it's what we, we would call today a moral hazard. Um, we can get a sense of this from page 58 of the Beveridge report, uh, when he advocated workfare. Uh, I quote, men and women who've been unemployed for a certain period should be required as a condition of continued benefit to attend a work or training center. Such attendance being designed both as a means of preventing habituation to idleness and as a means of improving the capacity for earning. Um, 
But Beveridge's concern about the erosion of work motivation by an unconditional something-for-nothing welfare state was ignored by successive governments. Um, and this is unfortunate because we now have empirical evidence that suggests his concern was more than just pub talk. Uh, for example, Andrew Dunn and colleagues recently found that unemployed people are significantly more choosy than employed people when it comes to accepting jobs. Uh, Dunn, Grasso and Saunders. Um, they studied this by comparing the responses of employed and unemployed individuals to the statement, having almost any job is better than being unemployed. Now, this study utilized two waves of the British cohort study and the National Child Development Study, totaling 10,868 participants. Um, it revealed that the percentage of unemployed respondents disagreeing or strongly disagreeing with that statement was more than twice as high as the percentage for employed respondents. Moreover, the size of the effect was large, with approximately 50% of unemployed respondents disagreeing or strongly disagreeing with the statement, in contrast to 20% of employed respondents. And finally, the research team showed that when other variables were taken into account, uh, unemployed people were still significantly more choosy than employed people. And in a second study, Dr. Dunn took a sort of different perspective. Um, he interviewed uh, 40 welfare-to-work industry employees about the attitudes of the unemployed people with whom they interacted over a six-month period. And this revealed that not only are between a quarter and a half of the claimants encountered by these workers during that period did not want employment, but also that these attitudes had become ingrained across multiple generations in what he viewed as a dependency culture. Um, and this latter finding is especially alarming because it suggests the benefit system is not only harming the prospects of the nation in the short term uh, by temporarily eroding the work motivation of people who are already adults, but in the long term by sowing the seeds of worklessness in future generations. And interestingly, if you go back to page 58 of the Beveridge report, um, Beveridge had an inkling of this problem, um, which is, you can see in this, in this quote here. Uh, for young persons who have not yet the habit of continuous work, the period should be shorter. For boys and girls, there should ideally be no unconditional benefit at all. Their enforced abstention from work should be made an occasion of further training. And evidence for intergenerational worklessness emerged as long ago as the 1970s uh, in longitudinal research carried out in Sheffield by W.L. Tung and colleagues, which showed that the uh, children of parents who rarely work have higher rates of unemployment than children from households in which work is more common. Um, and recent research paints a kind of similar picture. Um, if we look here, uh, this is a Tung study, Lindsay McMillan, 2014, um, she found that in high unemployment areas, sons spend up to 30% more time out of work if their father's workless. These studies should be of a concern to all of us, but correlation doesn't necessarily indicate causation. Um, for example, here we see US government data showing this highly significant positive correlation between the number of deaths from tangled bedsheets and per capita cheese consumption. Um, but since there's no causal mechanism linking cheese consumption with tangling bedsheets, we can be confident this is just a coincidence. Um, in my book, 
The welfare trait, I argue, that one causal factor linking eroded work motivation to a, an unconditional something-for-nothing welfare state is personality. And you could say I, I would do that, wouldn't I, because I'm a personality researcher. I want to get some grants. You know, that's quite, quite reasonable. Um, but for the benefit of audience members who are not personality researchers, I'll now provide a quick overview of the scientific literature pertaining to personality and employability um, to show that perhaps I'm not just trying to get a grant. Maybe there's something more to this. Um, the modern consensus is that human personality can be captured adequately by five dimensions. The so-called Big Five personality model. Um, you can see it listed here. Openness to experience, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and eroticism. And these are facet level aspects. So openness to experience indicates, uh, reflects proneness to fantasy, aesthetic interests, feelings, actions, ideas, values. Conscientiousness reflects uh, competence, order, dutifulness, achievement, striving, self-discipline, and de deliberation. Uh, extroversion, warmth, gregariousness, assertiveness, activity, excitement-seeking, positive emotion, agreeableness, trust, straightforwardness, altruism, compliance, modesty, and tender-mindedness, neuroticism, anxiety, hostility, depression, self-consciousness, impulsiveness, vulnerability to stress. Um, now this, for those of you who do have read a bit of personality history, you'll know this model leans heavily on Hans Eysenck's work, since Two of these dimensions, extroversion and neuroticism, are borrowed from his personality model, and two more, conscientiousness and agreeableness, are uh, essentially inverted sub subdivisions of what he viewed as psychoticism. Um, the final dimension of the Big Five is a more multifaceted uh, beast, which links to, sometimes to cognitive ability. Anyhow, the emergence of the Big Five model for personality doesn't mean that other models are invalid. Um, it, it doesn't mean that there are only five dimensions of personality. It's not like that. Uh, it simply means that for most practical purposes, the Big Five model provides a useful and valid approximation of human personality. And if you want to measure your own personality uh, in terms of the Big Five model, I've got an online personality questionnaire that will generate a profile for you, uh, this web link. Um, which, and it will also show how your personality profile compares to the average of the population. So if you're interested, it's just I got fed up with seeing these cowboy-type questionnaires and just thought we should have a, a free one that's actually based on a high-quality instrument. It's, it's based on a, um, a measure created as a joint effort between the US and UK governments back in the 90s. Um, because I think they were fed up with paying royalties to test manufacturers, something like that. But it's a very, very well-produced um, questionnaire. Don't worry about writing that down. I'll put it up on screen at the end for you. Um, so anyhow, in the 1960s, it became fashionable to view behavior as wholly determined by the situation. Um, but the emergence of the Big Five model um, has led to an accumulation of evidence that shows personality also matters. So personality is not the whole story, but we can't rule it out. Um, and more specifically, the reason we can't rule it out is we know from a variety of evidence that personality affects employability. Um, for example, the results of longitudinal studies show that personality measured in childhood predicts occupational outcomes in adulthood, um, even when controlling for other important variables like intelligence, 
socioeconomic status. So there's an ongoing study, which some of you might have heard of. Um, it's tracking the lives of approximately 1,000 people uh, who were born in the New Zealand city of Dunedin during 1972-73. Um, very interesting study. It's led to many wonderful breakthroughs uh, because these were all the babies born in Dunedin in that year, essentially. So it, it covers the whole spectrum of the population. Um, and because people don't move around much, you, the retention rate is excellent for this study. Um, and it revealed that the lower a participant scored on self-control as measured in childhood, the more prone they were to adverse outcomes in later life, such as teenage parenthood, criminality, and important here, occupational difficulties. Um, and since Moffitt and colleagues view self-control as a composite dimension of personality that approximates to the combined effects of conscientiousness and agreeableness, this finding supports the idea that conscientiousness and agreeableness amongst the big five are what affects employability the most. Um, and this idea is backed up by a recent study in the UK by Daly, Delaney and Egan. Um, in this study, a sample of 16,676 UK citizens have been measured on self-control during childhood. Uh, so similar in a way to the Dunedin cohort study. And the results echoed the New Zealand uh, sample. So children with low levels of self-control went on to suffer the greatest increases in unemployment during economic downturns. So the time when you really need to be at your most conscientious and agreeable, when jobs are really hard to come by, that's when these kids really suffered in the, in when they were older and having to try and find a job. Another source of evidence that personality affects employability is provided by cross-sectional studies. Uh, so these just take a snapshot at any one moment. Who's performing well? What do they score on personality? How does it relate? Um, and these studies show that both conscientiousness and agreeableness influence job performance in employed adults that in a way is consistent with the above findings that I've just mentioned. So we see that more specifically, conscientiousness is, is positively associated with sort of contracted aspects of job performance. Um, things like number of widgets made per hour, uh, that kind of thing. Um, whereas agreeableness is positively associated with non-contracted sort of helping, organizational citizenship is one phrase that's used, helping behaviors that benefit organizational co cohesion, um, helping, helping people even though you're not contracted to, if you like. Um, a further source of evidence of links between personality and employability comes from research on what was variously known or previously known as problem families, uh, or in modern jargon is known as troubled families. Um, one of the most detailed studies of this type was the aforementioned longitudinal case control research program conducted in Sheffield in the 70s and 80s by Tung and colleagues who wanted to disentangle the effects of psychological factors on social adjustment from the effects of economic and geographical factors. Um, so they compared two generations of so-called problem families with two generations of families who are matched on important variables such as neighborhood and income, yet were sufficiently functional not to require the intervention of more than one social services agency. So the control families were by no means paragons of adjustment. You know, many of them did require intervention from a social services agency, but not more than one, uh, whereas the problem families were involved with multiple agencies. That's their criterion. 
And this research revealed the chief difference between these families lay in the domain of personality. So the adults of the problem families, on average, possessed personality profiles that were significantly more impulsive, irresponsible, apathetic, and aggressive than the adults in the comparison families. And these are characteristics which they've got old-fashioned labels, but they correspond approximately to low scores on conscientiousness and agreeableness in sort of the jargon of modern personality research. Um, and in line with the notion that these personality characteristics had a knock-on effect on employability, the adults in the problem families also possess significantly worse work records. So nine of the 33 problem families contained parents who'd worked for more than 10% of the previous three years, compared to 23 out of 33 of the comparison families. Um, and these differences can't be explained away as a result of the comparison families living in more affluent areas with a more plentiful supply of jobs, uh, because Tung and colleagues took care to make sure the two groups were matched by location. And in some cases, the control families live next door to the problem families that they were being compared to. Uh, this matching is important because it fits with the idea that the employment difficulties of the problem families were primarily caused by a lack of motivation to behave conscientiously and agreeably rather than a lack of job opportunities in their particular neighborhood um, or financial differences between the two groups. And then the follow-up study, what they did is they tracked down the adult offspring a few years later um, of the original families and they compared the life outcomes of the second generation and found evidence of a dysfunctional pattern repeating itself to some extent. It wasn't a one-to-one -one mapping at all, but there was some evidence of a repeat. Um, and the importance of this convergence of the different types of evidence of person on personality and employability is that we can be more confident that the effect of personality on employability is not just an artifact of the methodological flaws of any one particular specific research design. Because um, it, it typically each study has its own limitations and it needs to be showcased with a lot of inferential caveats. Um, so this means it's reasonable to accept because we've got this converging evidence coming from various different places. Um, so individuals who happen to score relatively low on both conscientiousness and agreeableness do tend to have more employment difficulties. And you can kind of get a sense of that. Imagine if you were setting up a business, would you be keen to hire people who are unreliable and uncooperative? Just ask yourself. You, know, you can kind of get a sense of that from your own experience. Um, and so people who do have relatively low scores on conscientiousness and agreeableness are, do have a tendency to be unreliable and uncooperative and so can be therefore viewed as possessing what I've dubbed as the employment-resistant personality profile. Um, which you can see here, just as shown as an example, with some uh, two two axes. So this is just a this is just a proposition. If this proposition is valid, we should be able to predict that the employment-resistant personality characteristics, approximating to relatively low scores on conscientiousness and agreeableness, should be overrepresented amongst welfare claimants. And this is what's found to a large extent. For example, the Sheffield studies, they found that 58% of the adults in the problem families displayed dysfunctional personality characteristics which they described as impulsivity, irresponsibility, aggression, and apathy. 
and in comparison, 10.5% of the adults in the control group also displayed these characteristics. So again, the control group weren't a paragon of functionality at all. Um, so 10.5% of, of the adults did have problems with behaving in this uh, way. Um, and since we've already seen the adults in the problem families were also predominantly unemployed, whereas those in the control families were predominantly employed, so these data allow us to estimate that employment-resistant personality characteristics are roughly six times more common amongst habitually unemployed people um, in, this, in this particular study. And this ratio of overrepresentation shown by the Sheffield studies is echoed by a 2010 survey in the US by Vaughan and colleagues of a large and nationally representative sample of 43,093 adults which found that approximately 7% of welfare claimants met the diagnostic criteria for antisocial personality disorder. And this figure contrasts with a prevalence of approximately 1% for antisocial personality disorder in the population as a whole. Um, so based on these data, we can estimate approximately that 7% of welfare claimants possess severely employment-resistant personality characteristics roughly equivalent to antisocial personality disorder, which is a very extreme case. It's uh, uh, by no means common. Um, whereas around 50% have milder but still troublesome issues with behaving conscientiously and agreeably. So they don't meet the criteria for antisocial personality disorder but still have, have problems turning up, have problems doing what they're told, that kind of thing. Um, Moreover, we can estimate that these employment-resistant personality characteristics are six or seven times more common amongst the sector of the population that's habitually unemployed and claiming benefits compared to the average. And so this is, this is not saying that every unemployed person scores low on conscientiousness or agreeableness or that every employed person scores high. It's not saying that. It merely means that the subset of unemployed people who happen to possess this employment-resistant personality profile is proportionately larger uh, than the subset of employed people who possess it. Um, but so what? Why does it matter? Who cares? Why does it matter if employment-resistant personality characteristics are overrepresented? Now, well, why should we get concerned about this? Well, I'm saying the reason why it matters is because personality generalizes across situations. So if, for example, an individual is not sufficiently conscientious to work for a living, they're also unlikely to be conscientious enough to give their children the attention that they need in order to develop a functional personality profile. And the six to seven-fold over-representation of employment-resistant characteristics amongst welfare claimants means that a child born there is six to seven times more likely than an average child to have a parent who has problems with behaving conscientiously and agreeably. Um, and this is important. The, re the real reason why we should care is because parental inattention causes personality misdevelopment. Um, and this is demonstrated by evidence from randomized control trial methodology that has tested the effect of childhood disadvantage on life outcomes in adulthood. So it's not ethical to inflict disadvantage on children for research purposes. So the way such experiments typically work is they randomly divide a population of disadvantaged children who are already disadvantaged into two groups. And one group receives intensive in loco parentis preschool tutoring 
that resembles the kind of guidance that would normally be given to a child by a conscientious parent. Um, and more specifically, such an intervention typically entails three hours per day of sessions which are designed to build the children's skills in planning, executing and reviewing tasks. This is called the, the so-called plan-do-review uh, treatment. And they also receive training in conflict resolution. Um, the other group doesn't receive the tutoring. And random assignment to these two groups means we can be sure that differences in life outcomes between the two groups are caused by the tutoring. And they're not just caused by some confounding factor. Um, experiments of this type began in the 1960s, and so the first cohorts of children are now approximately 50 years of age. Uh, and they show that the children who received the intensive preschool tutoring had significantly better life outcomes than the untutored children, especially in the domains of employability and criminality. Uh, that's the reference Schweinhardt et al. 2005. Um, and remember, because they're randomized, this is an impressive finding. Um, and it also provides evidence that governments should provide intensive preschool tutoring for disadvantaged children um, because it pays off. I think they worked out for every dollar spent on intensive preschool tutoring for these kids, there was a $16 payoff. I mean, what's not to like? Um, and secondly, these studies show that an active ingredient by which childhood disadvantage harms life chances is parental attention rather than financial poverty on its own because the tutoring programs didn't affect the financial circumstances of the families in the study. It wasn't like the tutored kids, their parents got an extra 100 grand a year. It wasn't like that. It, they just, the only differences were the tutoring that was given to the youngsters. And the importance for pro-social personality development of receiving parental guidance in the early years tallies with the results of other research. Uh, there was a study uh, published too recently to be cited in the book by Minkov and Beaver, um, which found that in 51 nations, the rate of parental absenteeism in a nation was a significant predictor of its rate of criminal violence. So parents seem to matter, even across a wide range of nations. Um, and this finding in turn converges with evidence that youth crime is overrepresented in lone parent families in the UK since they constitute somewhere around 25% of households with dependent children, yet produce approximately 70% of the nation's young offenders. Um, but what's especially important to the debate about personality and welfare policy is the additional recent discovery by the Nobel laureate James Heckman and colleagues um, that intensive preschool tutoring improved the life outcomes of disadvantaged children by altering their personality development. Because the big hope with these studies is that the tutoring would boost IQ. Because back in the 20th century, everything was IQ-centric. It was all about boosting IQ. And the, initially, when they got the results, they were pretty depressed because it didn't produce lasting changes in IQ. But then they've become, more recently, more optimistic because they found that the tutored children were on average significantly less aggressive, antisocial and rule-breaking than untutored children. Um, and they also showed that the effect sizes were substantial with approximately 50% of the crime-related treatment effect and 20% of the employment-related treatment effect being attributed to experimentally induced changes in personality development 
and the remainder to other causes. So this is a kind of a, a swing. You could view the 20th century as the century of IQ. That's when everyone was joining Mensa and testing every, each other on IQ tests. Now we're moving into the 21st century, which I would say is the century of personality, which I probably would because it's my job. But anyhow, um, it, we're seeing a gradual realization, even amongst heavy hitters like James Heckman, the Nobel laureate, that personality really matters. Uh, and it can be affected by environmental changes. So the real key point is the damage done to personality development by parental inattention means that if a welfare policy causes claimants to have extra children, then due to the overrepresentation of unconscientious and disagreeable traits in that subsector of the population, this policy will tend to suffer to increase the number of children who suffer parental inattention and thus suffer personality misdevelopment. Um, and this point's crucial because there is evidence that welfare incentives do affect the reproductive choices of claimants. For example, in another recent study, uh, Haller, Lackner, and Sharla collated data on welfare spending and fertility in 23 OECD countries between 1980 and 2007, and they showed in that time period, uh, countries on average increased spending on the welfare state by 21.5%. Um, and this increase was associated with a 2.1% increase in fertility uh, in women between 15 and 44 years old. Um, just a correlation, of course, but it's interesting. Um, and the apparent positive correlation between welfare income and reproduction suggested by these OSE data are echoed by UK government data on family size and household employment status that I published as Table 1 in the book um, here. And it should be noted that this particular analysis was attacked by opponents of welfare state reform because it only includes households with children, okay? So it's only including households with children. Um, and the, the critics complained that the analysis should include childless households also um, because when this is done, this gradient disappears. Uh, there's a sort of rough gradient here. Um, and on January the 14th, my analysis even elicited this rather memorable quote on James Thompson's blog from Jonathan Portis. Um, and he said, this is, I'm afraid, not how you calculate an average. It's roughly equivalent to saying that Manchester City would have scored more goals than Arsenal per match this year if you don't count the matches where they failed to score at all. Um, now, this criticism overlooks the fact that where, whereas all football teams can score goals, and want to score goals, except England, <laughs> uh, not all households can have or want to have children. And it didn't take the public long to rumble this problem with Jonathan's analogy. For example, here's a counter-argument that showed up the next day in the comments section on James Thompson's blog. And this individual said, the question here is surely about the division between the extensive whether to have children, and intensive, how many children to have margins. So it's an extensive, intensive margins question, potentially. Dr. Perkins' analysis assumes there's a significant division here so that only those choosing to have children should be considered. Mr. Portis' view is that all people are making a choice over how many children they should have. Um, Mr. Portis' football analogy works if you assume that all people want to have children and are just wondering as to how many. Um, but we all know people who consciously choose not to have children. They would be like football teams intentionally not scoring any goals in certain matches. 
Um, the issue here is observing whether, having scored no goals in a particular match, it was because the team performed poorly or because they had decided not to score any goals. Um, so, you know, you, it's, there's a lot of debates around this. You can argue for both positions, I would say. Um, but as we've already seen, correlation doesn't necessarily imply causation. So regardless of whether we prefer my analysis plan or Jonathan's uh, analysis plan, government statistics such as these ones in Table 1 don't address causality and only become meaningful if they converge with the results of independent studies that haven't looked at causality and preferably are peer-reviewed. Um, and one of these studies was conducted in the States by Argies and colleagues, and these people compared the effects on reproduction of states in the UK, USA with differing policies on the payment of financial benefits for children born to 1,168 unmarried women who reported receiving income from welfare during at least one year between 1979 and 1991. And the study revealed the reproduction of claimants tracked the generosity of the benefits. Um, and this finding is congruent with those of other earlier studies in the U.S. which showed a similar tendency for increases in the generosity of welfare payments to be associated with increase in births amongst recipients. For example, um, there's Moffat, 98. Um, however, the interesting thing about RG's study is they additionally concluded that reductions in childbearing in response to reduced welfare generosity were achieved by increased contraceptive usage. And a similar tendency has also been found here in the UK for, for this kind of tracking effect. So in the late 90s and early 2000s, the UK government implemented policy changes that boosted the generosity of per-child uh, benefit payments by approximately 50% in real terms, so a big hike. Um, so generous were these uh, payments that the birth of a first child in a household in the bottom fifth of the UK income distribution would bring a cash benefit increase equivalent to a 10% rise in the net household income. And these effects of these changes to provisioning of benefits have been studied in detail by Mike Brewer and colleagues, revealing that the reproduction amongst welfare claimants in the UK is also sensitive to changes in incentives, uh, unsurprisingly. Um, and these increases in the generosity of per-child welfare that happened in the UK from 99 onwards uh, increased the number of children born to recipients by somewhere around 15%. Um, and Brewer et al. presented evidence to suggest this increase could be linked um, to the availability of more generous benefits because it coincided with increases in um, reduced contraceptive use. Sorry. Um, so this finding dovetails with the earlier conclusion from the states by Argies that reductions in birth in response to reductions in benefits were accomplished by increased use of contraception. So there seems to be a sort of uh, a tracking effect, at least, in the USA and UK, possibly. Um, a crucial link in the theory is the notion that these effects of welfare generosity on reproduction are driven by the over-representation of relatively unconscientious individuals amongst claimants. Because it could be the other way around. It could be that if you're really conscientious, you're, more, you're monitoring the levels of benefits more closely. It could be the other way around. Um, so the book cites a number of studies that provide background support for this notion um, that it's driven by the relatively less conscientious people because it shows that low scorers on conscientiousness on average tend to have more children than high scorers. Uh, and these 
uh, findings, which I cited in the book, have been backed up by more recent studies that um, were too recent to be published in the book. For example, Skirbeck and Blacksown, 2014, found that conscientiousness decreased um, fertility in females in Norway. Uh, likewise, Yao and colleagues um, found that criminal offenders in Sweden had more children than individuals never convicted. So they're using whether you've been convicted or not as a proxy measure. Um, finally, Berg et al. found that um, lower conscientiousness is linked to more children and grandchildren in both sexes. Um, since there's also evidence that low scorers on conscientiousness are especially responsive to short-term financial incentives um, in this study here, a subsection of the population that contains a higher proportion of individuals with relatively low scores on conscientiousness is likely to be more sensitive than average to, to perverse welfare incentives, um, if those, for example, include to have extra kids. So viewed as a whole, these studies suggest that if we have welfare policies which increase the number of children born into disadvantaged households, it might endanger the prospects of society, possibly. Um, and this effect of disadvantage is not only an effect of low income, but also parental inattention, which occurs because the, the recipients of the benefits contains a disproportionately large number of individuals who are relatively unconscientious and disagreeable. The same personality profile that makes a person be more likely to pay less attention to their child. So this possibility is backed up by evidence from Hart and Risley um, that there's a socioeconomic gradient in the amount of speech from mother to child. Uh, they found that children from professional families heard an average of 2,153 words per hour compared to an average of 1,251 words per hour for working class children and 616 words per hour for the children of welfare claimants. And since one avenue of molding our behavior patterns is via speech from parent to child, um, this discovery suggests that the children of benefit recipients have a built-in disadvantage when it comes to acquiring an adequate level of uh, social functioning, namely that their parents just on average speak less uh, to them than working parents. And so this has in turn been backed up by a new study showing the gap between high and low educated parents' time investment in developmental childcare activities has widened. Um, an increasing absence of fathers in households with low educated mothers, they, they, this study suggested, has exacerbated this trend. So there seems to be some sort of causal link between getting attention from parents and how, how we turn out uh, in our adult life. But if we view these studies together, we can see that the least capable parents, on average, are being incentivized to have extra kids, who then, as a result of not getting enough attention, may be suffering personality damage. And then the story repeats itself. So these words are disturbing they're, to many people, and even, even me. But as we've seen, they're, they're supported by empirical evidence published in peer-reviewed sources. So it's not just pub talk. It, there seems to be some kind of empirical basis to this. And we can quibble, we can quibble over the details of specific studies, um, definitely. Of course we can. Every study you can quibble over. Um, but I argue this evidence as a whole means it's premature to dismiss the possibility 
uh, that the welfare state could erode work motivation, much as Beveridge warned back in 1942. Um, and as I mentioned in my introduction, the scientific discussion about personality in the welfare state is just getting started. You're it. <laughs> You're the beginning of this discussion. Um, and I don't know the final outcome. Uh, but I do know that more scientific scrutiny and data are required and that this research effort should include consideration of the role played by personality. Um, and of course personality is not the whole story uh, when it comes to employment. There's many other factors that influence employment. Um, but as we've seen today, it seems to be part of the story. Um, and I think it's important to research and learn from the effect of government policies on our population, like Jason said, for everybody's sake. Um, we're not all the same, and if we assume we are the same, it doesn't do justice to the social welfare debate or the people who are struggling to make an independent life of their own. Um, thank you. I'll leave it there. Thank you. And now we have Dr. Kitty Stewart to be the discussant. Okay, thank you. Um, thank you very much for inviting me. I, I think that it is really important that we talk about ideas that are controversial and that we are able to open ourselves up to, to listening to ideas that aren't immediately comfortable uh, to us. Um, I think universities have to be a place where every view uh, can be heard. And I think it's by challenging our views that we, um, we, we develop our understanding of why it is that we think what we do. And sometimes we may even change our minds as a result of those discussions. And that's got to be a good thing. So I was very glad that this event was rescheduled after it was postponed. Um, and I was happy to accept uh, the invitation um, to come and be the discussant and to have the chance to read Adam's book, uh, which I've done very carefully, um, and to, to, to find out what all the fuss was about. Um, I have to say, after I had read the book, I was a bit less happy and a bit more ambivalent. Um, not because of Adam's position, which I think I was very clear about, really, where he was going to go with this argument um, when I started it, but because the quality of uh, analysis in this book is really very low. Um, and it's not clear to me that we should talk about controversial ideas just because they're controversial, and I think that that's what we're doing here. Um, Adam, I don't think your book would have had the attention that it's had, and I don't think we would be talking about it at LSE if you weren't saying things that were quite shocking to lots of people. So maybe that's good that we're having the chance to talk about shocking things, but I do want to be clear um, that, in my view, this book fails to meet basic standards of social um, science research. I think it repeatedly cherry-picks um, evidence. It presents one or two studies and it ignores contradictory literature. I think the literature is frequently misrepresented. In, 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 in several examples that I know, details are given out of context or selectively or exaggerated, and there may be others. Um, and I also, and evidence from one small qualitative study is used quite extensively. Uh, a study of a population with very particular characteristics, generalizations, are built from that. Um, so I, I realize that I am being very blunt. I'm not usually a kind of a blunt and controversial sort of person, um, but I think it's important to be so because I think this book is represented as an academic book, um, and I don't think it's an academic book. I think it's a polemic. 
I think it puts forward a thesis which is likely to uh, ferment antagonism towards some of the most disadvantaged um, sections of our, our society. And I think it does that on no solid evidence. And I think it does it in the face of a lot of contradictory evidence which the book overlooks and is not presented. And as such, I think this book runs counter to the code of ethics which I think we implicitly sign up to as academics. Um, let me say just a little bit more about where I'm coming from before I, before I, I, I talk about some examples of, of that and talk about Adam's arguments. Um, I think that probably Adam and I disagree on an awful lot of things, fundamentally. I, I think there's a, there are values in this book which it's clear to me that we come, we come at this from different angles, and I'm going to come to that at the end. But that's, that's fine, that's okay. I am also, I'm a trained social scientist, um, and I think what we must do as social scientists is try to step back from our presumptions and from, our preju- from, our, from the biases that we all of us bring to our work. We need to try and acknowledge those um, and step back and look at the evidence and what the evidence says. So just wanted to talk about one example briefly of, of, of the way that I've tried to do that in recent research. Um, I work a lot on child poverty and disadvantage, the causes and consequences of poverty. Um, and I recently did a systematic review with my colleague, Keris Cooper, looking at the evidence on whether income, household income, affects children's outcomes. Uh, is income, does income itself make a difference, or is it just that income is correlated with other aspects of, of um, parents' uh, household characteristics such as parental education and parents' approach to to parenting. Um, I thought from the evidence that I knew that it probably, what income itself probably was important. But I was very aware that I was only citing one or two studies which I knew about and that possibly there was a whole lot of evidence out there which didn't find the same thing. Um, So we did this systematic review and I have to tell you, a systematic review is incredibly boring and tedious and time-consuming. I think Keris could talk about that even more than, than I could. But it's an important approach because what you do is you, you look really widely and you look at all the evidence that's out there on the question that you're interested in. Um, and then we include, we, you sift through it, a lot, of it's irrele- a, lot, a lot of it is irrelevant. And you include anything which has looked at your research question and has used the methods that you've identified as robust. So we only wanted to look at methods which, were, which were, we thought got at causation. Um, and you include what they found regardless of the findings. So you look at the method and the question and not at the findings and you decide what to cover. I'll talk a bit about the findings from that in a minute, but I I highlight that because although I know that not all literature reviews can be systematic and can take that approach, it would be crazy, I do think those principles of looking as widely as we can at the evidence and trying to draw that in and trying to weigh up what this says and not only picking on particular studies that support us is really important. And those are things that I think the book um, falls short on. All that said, there are some things that we agree on. Um, Two things, I think, to start with. The first is the importance of social and emotional and behavioural development, as I call it, and as Adam calls it, personality, uh, in shaping children's pathways. So I completely agree about that, and I think increasingly the evidence on child development and on later outcomes really backs that up. Uh, So it's not just about cognitive development, it's not just about IQ, or it's not just about being healthy. Uh, these sorts, this, this type of development is also really important and predicts later pathways. It doesn't follow to me that these are genetic traits, and it doesn't follow that they can be added up into a single employment-resistant variable. Um, so there, we disagree. 
The second thing is that child poverty and disadvantage have negative effects on children, and Adam starts his book from this perspective, saying child poverty is really bad for children, so what could we do about this? Uh, And again, I agree, child poverty is bad for children, it's bad for their development, and it predicts worse outcomes in education and in the labour market. I disagree about what we would do about that. I would say, to to sort of sum it up, I I think the, the important thing is to tackle the poverty, get rid of the poverty, whereas I would say that Adam wants to get rid of the children, or rather discourage future children from being born into those families as a way to get rid of this problem. Um, But I want to go on now to talk about four points of disagreement between us, places where I think Adam is setting something out and is not backing this up with evidence, uh, and in many of cases I think there is evidence that runs counter to this. The first thing he hasn't actually talked about, but I think it's uh, an important part of his argument in the book, which is the idea that some people have a genetic tendency uh, to have a lot of children and not look after them. So he did touch on that a little bit. So, um, Adam, you talk about the K and the R reproductive strategies. They're essentially these two reproductive strategies um, that families follow. Well, the, the two reproductive strategies that can be followed. So there's the R strategy, in which you basically have a lot of children, you just kind of turn them out, have loads of children, and you hope that some of them make it through and some of them survive. Um, And as Adam says himself, this this theory actually comes from looking at different species. So this is a theory that that we, that this tendency we usually associate with insects do this. So they have loads and loads of eggs, they just leave them to get on with it, and the, the the kind of survival strategy for that species is that some of these will make it through. Um, then there's the K strategy, which is when a species has a few, just a few babies, you know, just a few babies or, or a few eggs in the case of uh, initially in the case of birds, um, and they look after those and they, they look after each of them and their strategy is that each of those, they hope that every single one of those will survive. And that's normally applied to vertebrates. And what Adam does in the book is, 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 say, is, is apply that theory that there are these two tendencies to humans and say that within humans we, we find that there are these different, strate- different tendencies and some humans seem to have a genetic tendency to go for the R strategy, have loads of babies and not really worry about it. Now, I don't think that that... I mean, I think that... There, what evidence is there that that is a survival strategy that is appropriate for humans? I don't think that you need to have carried a baby for nine months, given birth to it, looked after it in those early days, weeks, months, when it is entirely dependent for its survival on another human being. Um, I think if evolution tells us anything at all, it tells us that if there had been a gene for that sort of uh, survival strategy in humans, it would not have been passed down um, very long. Um, But Adam then turns to look at some sort of evidence from but human behaviour that points to this strategy, that there are people that just have lots of children and don't look after them. Um, and, and this is a study that he's already talked about, this Tong et al. study, which looks at these families, 33 problem families and 33 control families in Sheffield. And it's important to talk about that a little bit more um, because it's the study that Adam relies on a lot in the book to back up some of what he's saying. And as he said, actually, earlier today... This is a study of, it's in the title, Problem Families, now maybe called Troubled Families. So these families were selected because they had sufficient social and occupational maladjustment to be involved with multiple government social work agencies. Okay, and then we have some comparison families that live nearby, uh, their location, their income is very similar, but... 
they didn't require intervention. They might have had intervention from one social service agency, but not from multiple agencies. And then what Tong et al. find is that in the problem families, the, the adults are doing a lot of things that aren't really very good, that they're being a bit aggressive, maybe they're apathetic, not focusing on the children, uh, they're impulsive, they're more likely not to be working. And they, crucially for his argument, they have more children and they don't look after these children very well. So what I see when I look at this is that families which have been identified by social services as needing uh, more support and as having problems turn out to have more problems than families which are similar but have not been identified as such by social services. So, I mean, that may tell us something that social services are, are doing a good job of identifying the right families or at least are identifying, have the same criteria as the researchers do. I don't see what that tells us about genetics and I don't see what it tells us about low-income families or benefit recipient families in general and how they look after their children. Furthermore, there is a lot, a lot of other studies, both quantitative and qualitative, which also look at how low-income families and benefit-recipient families look after their children. And these come to very, very different findings. And none of this is discussed in the book. So there's a study by Greg et al., which is a quantitative study that I'm going to uh, come back to in a minute, looking at the way that families spend their money. Um, and there are lots and lots of other qualitative studies which talk to low-income families and tend to find that low-income families are just like every other family. They love their children, they care for them, they do their best for them, they live it, they're in difficult circumstances, so it's harder for them to do it, but they go to enormous lengths to try and protect their children from the effects of poverty. And here's just one example, someone talking about, you know, the extent, that the, the, the complications to think about trying to get that child a birthday present. So none of this is, is, is considered or talked about in the book. Second thing, the idea that there's such a thing as an employment-resistant personality. Um, now, as I've said, I, I agree that social and behavioural development, let's call it personality if we want to, is important uh, and makes a difference. Um, I don't think that in itself creates a case that there is a, a personality type that resists um, employment. So this explains a lot of the studies that you talk about, Adam. I, I, don't, I, have, I think that's absolutely right. And, and what they're showing is your childhood, childhood development predicts later employment outcomes. And this is part of childhood development. Um, so when we look at the fact that some children do worse when they have lower self-control, and when we look at the fact that long-term unemployed perhaps score worse on some of these things, that, that, makes, that makes sense, but that doesn't tell us that there is a personality trait called... Um, you can, put, you can take a couple of these things and join them together and you can call it employment uh, resistance. And I did your test, by the way. I did do your test online. And I'm, shouldn't, I shouldn't say this in, front of, in my place of employment, but I came out average on conscientiousness and I came out average on agreeable. Very well adjusted. So I was a little bit disappointed with that. Um, but anyway... Um, so there's also no evidence from, gee, I'm aware that I'm going to run out of time, but there's no evidence from genetics to support this, so there doesn't seem to be any evidence for a welfare claimant gene. Research into genetics tells us these things are very complicated. Um, how genes are expressed is the result of the interactions between genes and the environment. So the idea that we can pick out a trait that is an employment-resistant trait or a welfare trait, as in the name of the title, that doesn't seem to be held up. 
Um, finally, um, this doesn't fit with our knowledge of the way that the labour market works and the way that who welfare claimants are and who the employed people are. So this shows that we can't separate these two groups. There's not a group of welfare claimants over here and then a group of the employed over here. There's an awful lot of moving around and turnover between these two groups. So John Hills has looked at this very carefully in his book uh, last year or the year before. Um, he shows, for example, that in, a, in an average three-month period in recent years, five minutes, um, fine. In an average three-month period in recent years, uh, a million people lost their jobs and a million people got a job. So a lot of movement between employment and unemployment. Some of these people are the same people. A lot of these people are the same people at different times. Um, and, studies from the I and a study from the IFS has also found that over an 18-year period, nearly half of the population had claimed a means-tested benefit or a tax credit. Uh, so that's three times when you just look at a snapshot, uh, nearly half of the population. So again, a lot of um, fluidity between groups. Here's a figure from John Hills's book which shows what happens as people, so here's people uh, claiming, claiming JSA, so they lose their job at the beginning of this figure and you can see, just focus on the red line which is April 07 before the recession and you can see what happens over time. And you can see that after two months, half, only half of those people were still claiming the benefit. Half have found jobs. After 12 months, um, only one in 10 people were still claiming job seekers allowance, and only 2% after two years were still claiming job seekers allowance. Um, and another study by the Centre of Social Justice found that after 10 years, they found Birmingham was the top or the worst country, the worst city in the country for long-term unemployed over 10 years, they found 60 people in Birmingham who were unemployed uh, for 10 years. Um, now, maybe this is who, Adam, you're thinking about. When you're, when you're writing these things and you're talking about this employment resistance, are you talking about these 2% or even the 0.01% of the overall uh, working age population in Birmingham? So... Possibly you are, but in that case, you need to be much, much clearer about that because those people are highly unrepresentative of those claiming benefits in general. We wouldn't want to design a social security. We'd want to think about them, but we don't want to design our whole social security system for millions and millions of people, including many in this room who will need these benefits at some time, with that very, very small population in mind. And I think you slip in your book between those things, and it's really crucial because you make recommendations for the whole population, which seem to be based on very, very tiny groups. All right, I'm going to run out of time, but um, I need to address this argument of Mike Brewer's, um, of, that you, because your argument that the welfare, that social security systems have meant a lot more births uh, in workless families, you take from Mike Brewer and colleagues, as you've said. Uh, disadvantaged families, not necessarily. Working. Okay, disadvantaged, I apologise. Okay. okay, so Mike Brewer himself has, has, has um, uh, claimed that you misrepresent his findings. He emailed me beforehand, he said he agrees extra births did happen. He said my yep, estimate yep. was too high. He agrees extra births does happen. He thinks your estimate is too high, firstly, because he thinks for some reason it should be 13, not 15. But beyond that, he makes several points. Um, the first is that what this did, this increase in Labour's tax credits, we, he follows what happens over a few years. So you see the extra births. You're not looking at people's total fertility. So it doesn't tell us how many of these are extra births, possibly none, possibly all of them. 
but it could well be that what people are doing is changing the timing of the births that they're having. Um, also, not clear in the book, but now you've uh, clarified, the majority of this extra support under the, tax, under the tax credit system went to families that were working. So if we think this had an effect on births, we would think this had an effect on births in families that were working, um, not on workless households. And he also finds no effect on lone parent households, which is interesting. So households who would have to give up work that would ch- and, and look after the child or so on. The effect was in couple households, where what the tax credits do is provide a disincentive to second earners to go into work. So there's more of an incentive to stay home, and you can imagine that that might encourage the third child, or it might mean that you change the timing a bit. So what Mike says is that there is some evidence here that people take this into account. You know, that the material circumstance is one of the things that we take into account. Um, but the, the, the figures in your book over-represent um, his findings, and they certainly don't show that people have these extra babies in order to have more money. Um, And there's also work by Robert Moffat that you put up there, but you put one study that Robert Moffat cites. Robert Moffat has done really interesting work on this, and he's very nuanced. He doesn't say no. He says that about half the studies do find an effect. Often it's small. It's only in certain circumstances. There's lots of nuance and interesting stuff here, but you don't cite that, and that's frustrating as a social scientist. Okay, so the final thing, and this is crucial, is that it is the welfare state and not poverty that affects children's outcomes. This is a case that Adam makes. Um, And given how crucial this is to the entire argument, uh, that the welfare, the the fact of being a welfare recipient is the problem, not the fact that you are living in poverty, there's very little about this in the book. So I think you touch on it really in two places. One place that you've talked about Um, where you say that we can't eliminate the possibility that it's poverty that's driving the social and behavioural development rather than being a welfare claimant, and you go on to talk about early education and care. I think that's a bit of a non-sequitur. My time's up, so I'm not going to explain why I think that. Um, But you also... uh, I've just got to say this very crucial point which is that, again, then you finally get to the point of saying, okay, but if I'm um, arguing that we should cut welfare benefits, is that not going to cause more poverty among households and that could make things worse? And then you say, no, 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 it's fine, because Tong et al. in 1975 found that these problem families spent all this extra money on luxury chocolates and welfare benefits. So it's okay. There is an enormous amount of other evidence, evidence from Greg et al., which shows that low-income families, as their income increases, they spend that money on their children, and their spending on alcohol and cigarettes falls. They spend the money on fruit and vegetables. There's also my research with Keris, which looks at a lot of very robust studies and finds very clear evidence that this affects children's outcomes with quite substantial sizes. So if we're going to cut families' benefits, then that's really a problem. So I cannot tell you that we disagree about values, um, and I don't, I think, but I think that we maybe should talk about the evidence, because we may not reach agreement um, on values and on whether, it's, whether babies are different, and we should um, accept that we might want to have only the very highly productive and very agreeable people in our society. I disagree about that. I'd like to have everybody in our society. But I think that beyond that, we disagree about the evidence. And I would like our students, certainly who are here, to be clear that just because your view is controversial, you still have to have rigorous evidence to, to back it up. Thank you. And
All right. So I'd like to thank both Adam and Kitty for their, for their very interesting and stimulating talks. And I would just like to note that I think one thing which is nicely illustrated here is that the very Kuhnian label of normal science, I think, vastly misrepresents the fact that normal science is actually conducted a bit like a bare-knuckle boxing match at times, which I think was quite nicely illustrated in the nature of the debate here. Uh, I would like to open the floor for questions, but I want to give everyone a few moments to think about what you would like to ask and invite Adam to take no more than two minutes, and I really do mean no more than two minutes, for a quick response, and then we'll go to the floor for questions. I'd just first of all like to thank Kitty for a critique by someone who's actually read the book. That's a massive Very step. Carefully. That's a massive step forward to a lot of the critiques. Um, and of course, money does matter. There's a, a, a seminal study. I think it was done in a Native American community, which had a casino. Mm-hmm. And That's one of our studies. Quite a famous. Yeah, yeah exactly. and, and it showed money does matter. So the, the kids, because the parents had more money, they could devote more time to their kids. Yeah, so there's not a trade-off between That's right, money exactly. And, and so the, the key thing, very quickly, I'm sorry to... Uh, so cash transfers across the, the population are, of course, beneficial, but the problem comes um, when you have a subsection of the population with a different personality profile, and that's where these studies showing the overrepresentation of unconscientious traits matter, because it means that cash transfers to this sector of the population may have different behavioral outcomes to cash transfers to the population in general, like the whole of that Native American community. Um, therefore, studies evaluating the effect of cash transfers upon behavior in general, which do not measure the personality profile of the recipients, are interesting, of course, in their own right, but they, they kind of don't really zero in on this issue of personality and behavior. And the other thing is personality does have both an environmental and a genetic component, and the environmental input to your personality development vastly overshadows the heritability, and that's why there's more headroom for personality to be damaged by being in a disadvantaged and inattentive household. That, that's why you have that extra headroom. If it comes to IQ, it, it's way more heritable, so there's not such headroom for your IQ to be influenced by your experiences. So that's why presumably you'd want to um, stop families from living in poverty and part of that is making sure there are adequate social security benefits when families do lose their jobs or when exactly. times are tough. And then when you have a, a parent who's less conscientious, the, the whole the meaning of conscientiousness is that you, you do the right thing, you, as the facets show, you're dutiful, you, you plan. So the less conscientious you are, the less you're bothered by looking after your kids. But so, right. so for those sorry to interrupt at this point. Yeah, sorry, I think that this debate could continue yeah, yeah. all night. I think it's very interesting. But I would like to give people in the audience a chance to ask questions. So please raise your hand, and when you get the microphone, could you please announce your name, affiliation, and uh, speak concisely uh, to the point that you have. All right, so could we please have the individual there for the first question? the second row, and then the person in the back as the the second question. I'll take two questions in in sequence. So, yes, please. Um, I'm Christina Easton. I'm a PhD student in the philosophy department here. Um, I I haven't read the book, so I just wanted you to clarify what it is that you are suggesting policy-wise. John Stuart Mill, who is a massive advocate of liberty, did say that his liberty principle doesn't extend to the, the family because if what you're suggesting is correct, then it would be causing harm to others. However, most people would see that any intervention in family life would be so detrimental to, to liberty, if you're suggesting getting involved in reproductive um, practices. 
So I'm just wondering what, what it is that you are okay. actually suggesting. Okay, actually, why don't you answer that? Yeah, um, yeah so a, a, a great point. Uh, what I'm suggesting policy-wise is the government should look very closely at potential incentives which may be perverse. They may cause extra children to be born into disadvantaged circumstances. So these are children who may or may not have been born otherwise. And we, the point is we need way more research on this. That's my recommendation. But we've got loads of research. But there is evidence right. to show there is sensitivity. So if I could that's please that's interrupt somewhere. the discussion up here on stage. I wasn't expecting to have this problem quite so much. Yeah. The individual Sorry, in the back. Sorry, I was shut up. Yeah, thank you. Um, I mean, you said so many things that are somewhat dis disconcerting. But uh, um, most of that will be, you said that conscientious produce fewer children. Now, if the consciences do produce fewer children, then what is the future of humanity? Is that what you're saying, that human, the future of humanity is doomed? doomed? Thank you. No, no, because the, the personality profile of the population is normally distributed. So there's, there's way more people in the middle ground. It's, it's about 68% of us are somewhere around the mean on conscientiousness and 16% either side. So we're outnumbered if we're an extreme outlier. You'd need many, many millennia of, of reproduction to, to, to cause the outliers to become the norm, statistically. Kitty, did you have anything to follow up on that? Oh, no, sorry. I was trying to control myself so I wasn't oh, focusing. Okay. Okay. So, Thank you. Sorry. All right. Uh, um, so could we have uh, the individual in the back right here? Uh, this is sort of a point of clarification. Um, you talk about personality development, um, but also behavioral and social development. I was just wondering, do you see these uh, ideas as interchangeable, or are there significant differences? And if so, could you outline that? Because I'm left a bit confused. I'm not entirely sure if you're talking about the same thing. Mm. Well, you could lump it all under a kind of umbrella term that some people use, like socialization, where you acquire the sort of norms of your, your community. Uh, and that does include an element of personality development. A lot of the work done on that uh, was in the States, David Licken, um, particularly big name. And so he, he viewed that there's a sort of uh, an interaction. So your acquisition of these norms, whatever you want to call them, depends on your dose of genes for being easy to socialize. So if you happen to have a very high dose of genes for being easy to socialize, you will tend to acquire the norms relatively easily, even in a, an adverse environment. If you're at the other end of the scale, so you've got a very low dose of the genes for being easy to socialize, you'll turn out to be maladjusted regardless of your upbringing. You could have a tremendously benefit. This, is, this explains why you still get people with dysfunctional, problematic personality profiles, even though they've come from a very privileged background. Just think of Edward VIII. <laughs> um, you know, uh, so, but he says most of us are in between. We've just got an average dose of the genes for ease of socialization. So we're the kind of easily swayed kids. So we just kind of blow whichever way our environment um, tells us to. And these are the kids that we should worry about because they're the, in the vast majority. So if we have a policy that causes extra children to be exposed to disadvantage in childhood, then it's, the, it's these easily squayed kids that really suffer. The, 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 the outliers are just genetic hard cases. They, they're, they're insensitive to their environment, according to his model. So. 
Kitty, do you have anything you would like to add? I just... Th- I don't, but then, yeah, so if, we, if the problem is exposing children to disadvantage in childhood, then we need to have... We need to ensure that children are not exposed to disadvantage in childhood. Yeah, and one of, that issue, one of the issues there is parental attention. So you yes, and, one, and many of those studies show that if, and as you just, and you agree, that if yeah. you give parents more yeah. money and as you make things show. a bit easier for them, they, attention goes up, they're less likely to be depressed. Average across the community, but if you have a subsector of that community that has an overrepresentation of unconscientious... So your concern traits. is about that the... In, about these very few people. There's a very few people that you're worried about where, they, where that won't be enough. So you need social workers or you need intervention. Exactly. So that's okay, but you can sit that within a system which provides adequate financial support for all families with children and then make sure that those really families where things are tough, you're providing yeah. them with the extra help, you're, giving, you're making sure they're getting their early education and that it's very intensive. Once kids so, have been, exactly. Once kids have been born, you should throw everything at giving them extra help. So... That's why governments, Heckman's big argument is governments should invest in intensive preschool tutoring. Yes, and, and, all, right. we need and all I'm saying is that we should also take a look at policies just in case they cause uh, extra children to be born. That's all right, let's take another question from the audience. Uh, could we have the uh, person in the front row here, please? I can't help being reminded of the old American myth of the welfare queen. There's some woman living in Harlem somewhere who's having tons and tons of children just so she can get more benefits. And this went round, and this is part of what helped Ronald Reagan get elected twice and started this whole conservative stuff that's gone on that's that's impacted the the world we're living in now. Um, I'm also reminded of a very, very old joke that predated all the way back probably to before the Chinese one-child policy. There's a woman in China. A woman in China has a child every 20 seconds. Well, someone needs to find her and stop her. Um, it, Excuse me, is, is there a question? Just where do you fit your research into all the research about childhood health, physical health, the fact that there are so many people... It, it, my, my question just goes on because it, because I, I where does this fit with the with reality? Of, That's of, quite a big of, question. Of, of of poverty, poverty affecting what what people eat about about access to to birth control, in you know with poverty about access to to medical care in certain countries where it isn't there's no NHS or somebody has to wait six months to see somebody even on the NHS all, all right. of these things all right thank you uh, that's a tough one um, perhaps the best thing to say is I'm I'm trying to focus on typical westernized developed countries rather than the, the ones where there is no welfare state or no NHS well I, I'm not sure about that but the I would say that it's just part of a, a jigsaw if you can bring to bear discoveries from personality research that help to refine policy, then why not? I suppose that's the best I can do. All right. So, so could we get a question from this side of the room out of fairness? So that individual right there, please. I'm Daniel. I work with disabled people. So um, the DWP says that 
12 million, approximately um, one in five, um, with substantial and adverse um, conditions, and most of them don't work, um, either because they can't or because of discrimination. So um, does your um, work account for that and um, uh, for those who do um, voluntary work um, do you factor in that this is um, fulfilling and um, uh, socially useful and um, uh, they may not um, I rely more on benefits than I earn so um, am I do I have a personality disorder thank you That's a good point. That, that's, a, that's a very, very useful point because the, the, the key thing to realize is that personality is just natural variation within the population. Whilst you can have lesions that do change personality, it's not the same as just the, the normally distributed, the bell curve of characteristics we have in any of these major traits, whether it be extroversion, neuroticism, conscientiousness, agreeableness. So, so I'm not dealing with the... Um, individuals who, who don't fit within that uh, natural variation. That's why I don't call it a disorder. It's not a disorder. Disorders are, are different. They're much more discreet. We're just dealing with natural variation. And it's, this employment-resistant personality profile is just the, the confluence of these two uh, dimensions, conscientiousness and agreeableness. If you happen to be low-scoring on that domain, you, you tend to be unreliable, uncooperative, and as a result, unsurprisingly, you have difficulties getting a job. But it's not the same. As, as a discrete issue. All right, another question. Um, can we have the individual in the front, please? Uh, hi, my name's Kate. I'm a social policy PhD student here at LSE. Um, I had two questions. So, um, kind of more broadly, I, I agree that I really welcome this being a chance for debate, and it's important to hear controversial ideas. Um, but I found it quite interesting, your choice of language sometimes, when you set up the beginning of your presentation talking about the importance of scientific precision. And I just wondered why you chose to use two terms specifically. One, talking about the welfare state and the welfare trait, when it seems like mostly you're talking quite specifically about unemployed Social Security claimants, which makes up about 3% of the Social Security bill. You seem to then be lumping in kind of pensioners, uh, people claiming for disability, and so it's maybe quite a dangerous kind of broad-brush approach to take. Um, and the second sort of term that you used was this something-for-nothing to describe the state of the Social Security system. Um, kind of that comes from the government's sort of um, speeches, basically. It's not even something used in policy documents. Um, and I find it quite hard for something for nothing to encapsulate what the current Social Security system yeah. looks like for unemployed claimants. So I wondered why you used that term at the beginning. And then my second oh, question sorry. was is around... That, um, that's t is that one or two? The, the, just, the, just those two terms and then okay. putting that within your... Uh, wanting to be very scientifically precise uh, and make an argument based on evidence. And then my second question was um, about the role of structure. I, I assume as a personality uh, researcher, that's not something that you look at, and so it's just not your emphasis. But it seems like to ignore the sort of, I mean, the classic structure agency sort of debates. Uh, the fact uh, that, so, okay. yeah, thank you. Where does that fit? Yeah. Because you see higher claim, claims of unemployment benefit in areas where that are post-industrial cities, for example. Um, and that doesn't account. Thank you. Yeah. So, yeah, great point. If, if I can 
do the second half of your first question. There's something from nothing that harks back to beverages. That's why I put those beverages quotes where he was clear that you should not have this. He, he said six months should be the, the maximum period for adults where they could have uh, unconditional benefits. Then they had to turn up to work at a centre or a... Well, it, he had... If you, I mean, let's just go back to the quote. Uh, yeah. Um, men and women who've been unemployed for a certain period should be required as a condition of continued benefit to attend a work or training centre. So he's, he's still, even though it's an insurance system, he's still not saying it should be unconditional. So like the work program that exists Well, that, that, ironically, they're, they're, all they're doing is harking back to beverage, which, and it hasn't gone down well from what, from what I've seen. Um, so the welfare state trait, the... Um, the origin, I didn't call it the welfare gene because I wanted to acknowledge that personality is a trait that has multiple causal roots, including environment, genetics. And, and I, so I wanted to get the concept that we do have traits. We do vary in conscientiousness, let's say, or extroversion or neuroticism. And I, so I wanted to put that in the forefront because I don't think the discussion of the economics of welfare policy takes into account that we differ. I mean, if everyone was conscientious, highly conscientious, the current welfare state would work great because you'd only use it when you absolutely had to. You, you wouldn't take liberties with anything at all. You'd be like a, a perfect little ideal citizen because that's highly conscientious people are very much um, law-abiding, rule-following. That's the nature of the trait. So I, I called it a trait in that sense. Um, but who are they? You're slipping again into this sort of talking about unemployment, unemployment yeah. claimants as if... So I'm just talking about the, the, the population contains personality variation. Some of us are more conscientious, some of us are less. That's just the, the way it, the data come out. Um, and so if you happen to have difficulties with turning up on time, doing what you're told, cooperating with colleagues, being polite to customers, there's a, there's a cost to that. It's not cost-free in a work environment, in my experience. Sure, I, sure. But would, I, but, you, would but, you hire an unreliable, uncooperative person but, if you were setting up a business? But you saw the figures about the JSA allowance, which show you that the vast majority, a million people yeah. losing their jobs, a million people gaining jobs. I mean, so I, it's I mean, just very a, hard to get a grasp on who it is we're this. talking um, about. Across all ages, 94% of those starting to receive job seekers allowance between January and March 2014 had stopped receiving benefits 52 weeks later. So we're not talking about people who are n never work. We're talking about your odds over your lifetime, and that's why... Uh, studies which have, have looked at rather than absolute worklessness or not, they say, okay, how, how many months in the last three years have you worked? That's quite a more sensitive measure. And, and I'm not sure that these government statistics capture that. It's more of an absolute cross-sectional design. I'm sorry, anyway, let me carry on to your second question. Um, so what's the structural role? Well, of course there's a structural role. I'm just saying that personality can supplement that. So we don't ignore structural elements at all. We're, I'm sure in the big picture, uh, that's critical. I'm just speaking up for personality. That's All right. So I think we have time for one more question. So, um, so there would be a person in the second row there. Um, my question is, um, I mean, you, you did mention earlier on that um, that the least capable parents are incentivized to have multiple children. But I think also, while you mention the effect of personality, it seems to me that we're discussing 
as with maybe a lot of other people in the room, that it's not absolutely clear exactly who it is we're talking about. As other people have mentioned, there will be crossover between um, recipients of uh, benefits and people who are in full-time work. There will be crossover of people who are from extremely disadvantaged economic backgrounds, but they will have conscientious personality traits like the majority of the population. As you mentioned yourself, people, all human behavior will fall along that bell curve, that standard curve. So um, it, it, I'm just sort of slightly confused as to who, you know, who is this tiny number of people who are not conscientious, who are purely on welfare, who are not working, um, and, and what, what, is their, what is their actual impact yeah, so on real terms on, on, on the welfare bill that we need to be so worried about them? So, yeah, the, 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 the number of households uh, who've never worked is seemingly quite small. I think um, there's a, a bunch of uh, data from the government. I think it was, it's, it's doubled from 190,000 to 300,000 in the last, since 96. So that's a tiny proportion, obviously. So we're not necessarily dealing with people who've never, ever worked. They've never had so much as a paper round. We're dealing with people who fall in and out of work and their chances of holding down a job are in, impinged upon by being less reliable, less cooperative. That's all. All right, and then we do have time for one more quick question, please. So the person in the front, please. I've got uh, two quick questions. Um, one is, given that there's these personality traits uh, and that we're all on a, a spectrum of these personality traits, including um, extroversion or kind of mental health traits, what does this say about employability? Like, do you think employment has something to have to change, you know, in the way that we are, in, in the way that if employment is flexible mm. to these different people with different traits. Um, and secondly, in a world where welfare is looking like it will exist, um, what can policy advisors learn in terms of the different aspects of a welfare system in terms of policy? So um, I kind of agree with Kitty's point about this lot of generalizations in your talk about the welfare system. Yeah, well, that, Within that, specific policies, what levers can be pulled to improve employability and other traits in people? Yes, so, so great point. So there's the question about do we just want to have a population of people who are exceptionally reliable, they fit into these classic uh, clocking-in type jobs? And no, we don't, because there's many different... Uh, niches for people. It may be the case that if you're less conscientious, you have a bigger picture perspective. You don't get lost in the details of a problem. You can see the big picture, like whether or not to call a referendum, uh, you know, this sort of thing. So, but the, the, the argument is that for most jobs, if you averaged across a million jobs, they tend to be suited to people who do turn up on time and do cooperate and aren't so much these free thinkers. So that's a great question. Um, and the second is about what, what can we learn for policy advisors. And, and what I would say is you want a sort of triage system, I would suggest, where, because most unemployed people, I've, I've been unemployed, you, you end up there through just circumstances and, and you don't need much of a nudge to get back into work. You just a, maybe a bit of an arm around the shoulder to encourage you to get back on your feet. And then there's a, a subsection, which is likely quite small, of, of people who are resistant, who, regardless of how much help they're given, are not willing to cooperate because they're less conscientious, less agreeable, because that's what these traits mean. 
And for these individuals, then maybe it's necessary to have a more strict conditionality. So it's looking at the conditionality, I think, um, and triaging it in a way that, that so you don't use, use a sledgehammer to crack a nut. It's just, it's just ridiculous. You, you'd have a triage system and conditionality becomes more developed and more um, constrained as, as you go up the spectrum of willingness to just have a go at getting a job. Um, All right. That's what I would suggest. All right, and on that note, I would just like to say, ladies and gentlemen, it's been a great pleasure for me and I think all of you to listen to Dr. Adam Perkins and Dr. Kitty Stewart in their discussion. I would like to note that there is a book sale taking outside the theater, and Adam has agreed to sign on stage afterwards. Thank you very much for your visit. We are most grateful that you could find time to be here today, and let's thank our two speakers. <laughs>